Chapter Sixteen of the Old Curiosity Shop. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixteen. The sun was setting when they reached the wicket gate, at which the path began, and as the rain falls upon the just and unjust alike, it shed its warm tint even upon the resting places of the dead and bade them be of good hope for its rising on the morrow. The church was old and grey, with ivy clinging to the walls and round the porch. Shunning the tombs, it crept about the mounds, beneath which slept poor humble men, twining for them the first wreaths they had ever won, but wreaths less liable to wither, and far more lasting in their kind, than some which were graven deep in stone and marble, and told in pompous terms of virtues meekly hidden for many a year, and only revealed at last to executors and mourning legatees. The clergyman's horse, stumbling with a dull blunt sound among the graves, was cropping the grass, at once deriving orthodox consolation from the dead parishioners, and enforcing last Sunday's text that this was what all flesh came to. A lean ass, who had sought to expound it also, without being qualified and ordained, was pricking his ears in an empty pound hard by and looking with hungry eyes upon his priestly neighbour. The old man and the child quitted the gravel path, and strayed among the tombs, for there the ground was soft and easy to their tired feet. As they passed behind the church, they heard voices near at hand, and presently came on those who had spoken. They were two men, who were seated in easy attitudes upon the grass, and so busily engaged as to be at first unconscious of intruders. It was not difficult to divine that they were of a class of itinerant showmen, exhibitors of the freaks of punch, for, perched cross-legged upon a tombstone behind them, was a figure of that hero himself, his nose and chin as hooked, and his face as beaming as usual. Perhaps his imperturbable character was never more strikingly developed, for he preserved his usual equable smile, notwithstanding that his body was dangling in a most uncomfortable position all loose and limp and shapeless, while his long peaked cap, unequally balanced against his exceedingly slight legs, threatened every instant to bring him toppling down. In part scattered upon the ground at the feet of the two men, and in part jumbled together in a long flat box, were the other persons of the drama—the hero's wife and one child, the hobby-horse, the doctor, the foreign gentleman who, not being familiar with the language, is unable in the representation to express his ideas, otherwise than by utterance of the word, shalabalah, three distinct times, the radical neighbour, who will by no means admit that a tin bell is an organ, the executioner, and the devil, were all here. Their owners had evidently come to that spot to make some needful repairs on the stage arrangements, for one of them was engaged in binding together a small gallows with thread, while the other was intent upon fixing a new black wig, with the aid of a small hammer and some tacks, upon the head of the radical neighbour who had been beaten bald. They raised their eyes when the old man and his young companion were close upon them, and pausing in their work, returned their looks of curiosity. One of them, the actual exhibitor, no doubt, was a little merry-faced man, with a twinkling eye and a red nose, who seemed to have unconsciously imbibed something of his hero's character. The other, that was he who took the money, had rather a careful and cautious look, which was perhaps inseparable from his occupation also. The merry man was the first to greet the strangers with a nod, 
and following the old man's eyes, he observed that perhaps that was the first time he had ever seen a punch off the stage. Punch, it may be remarked, seemed to be pointing with the tip of his cap to a most flourishing epitaph, and to be chuckling over it with all his heart. "'Why do you come here to do this?' said the old man, sitting down beside them, and looking at the figures with extreme delight. "'Why, you see,' rejoined the little man, "'we're putting up for to-night at the public-house yonder, and it wouldn't do to let them see the present company undergoing repair.' "'No?' cried the old man, making signs to Nell to listen. "'Why not, eh? Why not?' "'Because it would destroy all the delusion, and take away all the interest, wouldn't it?' replied the little man. "'Would you care Apney for the Lord Chancellor, if you'd knowed him in private and without his wig? Certainly not.' "'Good,' said the old man, venturing to touch one of the puppets and drawing away his hand with a shrill laugh. "'Are you going to show them to-night? Are you?' "'That is the intention, Governor,' replied the other. "'And, unless I'm much mistaken, Tommy Codlin is a-calculating, at this minute, what we've lost through your coming upon us. Cheer up, Tommy, it can't be much.' The little man accompanied these latter words with a wink expressive of the estimate he had formed of the traveller's finances. To this Mr. Codlin, who had a surly, grumbling manner, replied, as he twitched Punch off the tombstone and flung him into the box, "'I don't care if we haven't lost a farden, but you're too free. If you stood in front of the curtain and see the public's faces as I do, you'd know human nature better.' "'Ah, oh, it's been the spoiling of you, Tommy, you're taking to that branch,' rejoined his companion. "'When you played the ghost in the regular drama in the fairs, you believed in everything, except ghosts. But now you're a universal mistruster. I never see a man so changed.' "'Never mind,' said Mr. Codlin, with the air of a discontented philosopher. "'I know better now, and perhaps I'm sorry for it.' Turning over the figures in the box like one who knew and despised them, Mr. Codlin drew one forth and held it up for the inspection of his friend. "'Look here! Here's all this Judy's clothes, falling to pieces again. You haven't got a needle and thread, I suppose?' The little man shook his head, and scratched it ruefully, as he contemplated the severe indisposition of a principal performer. Seeing that they were at a loss, the child said timidly, "'I have a needle, sir, in my basket, and, and thread, too. Will you let me try to mend it for you? I think I could do it neater than you could.' Even Mr. Codlin had nothing to urge against a proposal so seasonable. Nelly, kneeling down beside the box, was soon busily engaged in her task, and accomplishing it to a miracle. While she was thus engaged, the merry little man looked at her with an interest which did not appear to be diminished when he glanced at her helpless companion. When she had finished her work, he thanked her, and inquired whither they were travelling. No, "'No further to-night, I think,' said the child, looking towards her grandfather. "'If you're wanting a place to stop at,' the man remarked, "'I should advise you to take up at the same house with us. That's it, the long, low, white house there.' very cheap. 
the old man, notwithstanding his fatigue, would have remained in the churchyard all night, if his new acquaintances had remained there too. As he yielded to this suggestion a ready and rapturous assent, they all rose and walked away together, he keeping close to the box of puppets, in which he was quite absorbed, the merry little man carrying it slung over his arm by a strap attached to it for the purpose, Nelly having hold of her grandfather's hand, and Mr. Codlin sauntering slowly behind, casting up at the church tower and neighbouring trees such looks as he was accustomed in town practice to direct to drawing-room and nursery windows, when seeking for a profitable spot on which to plant the show. The public-house was kept by a fat old landlord and landlady, who made no objection to receiving their new guests, but praised Nelly's beauty and were at once prepossessed in her behalf. There was no other company in the kitchen but the two showmen, and the child felt very thankful that they had fallen upon such good quarters. The landlady was very much astonished to learn they had come all the way from London, and appeared to have no little curiosity touching their farther destination. The child parried her inquiries as well as she could, and with no great trouble, for finding that they appeared to give her pain, the old lady desisted. "'These two gentlemen have ordered supper in an hour's time,' she said, taking her into the bar, "'and your best plan will be to sup with them. Meanwhile you shall have a little taste of something that'll do you good, for I'm sure you must want it after all you've gone through to-day. Now don't look after the old gentleman, because when you've drank that he shall have some too.' As nothing could induce the child to leave him alone, however, or to touch anything in which he was not the first and greatest sharer, the old lady was obliged to help him first. When they had been thus refreshed, the whole house hurried away into an empty stable, where the show stood, and where, by the light of a few flaring candles stuck round a hoop, which hung by a line from the ceiling, it was to be forthwith exhibited. And now Mr. Thomas Codlin, the misanthrope, after blowing away at the pan's pipes until he was intensely wretched, took his station on one side of the checked drapery which concealed the mover of the figures, and putting his hands in his pockets, prepared to reply to all questions and remarks of punch, and to make a dismal feint of being his most intimate private friend, of believing in him to the fullest and most unlimited extent, of knowing that he enjoyed day and night a merry and glorious existence in that temple, and that he was at all times and under every circumstance the same intelligent and joyful person that the spectators then beheld him. All this Mr. Codlin did with the air of a man who had made up his mind for the worst, and was quite resigned, his eye slowly wandering about during the briskest repartee to observe the effect upon the audience, and particularly the impression made upon the landlord and landlady, which might be productive of very important results in connection with the supper. Upon this head, however, he had no cause for any anxiety, for the whole performance was applauded to the echo, and voluntary contributions were showered in with a liberality which testified yet more strongly to the general delight. Among the laughter none was more loud and frequent than the old man's. Nell's was unheard, for she, poor child, with her head drooping on his shoulder, had fallen asleep and slept too soundly to be roused by any of his efforts to awaken her to a participation in his glee. The supper was very good, but she was too tired to eat, and yet would not leave the old man until she had kissed him in his bed. He, happily insensible to every care and anxiety, 
sat listening with a vacant smile and admiring face to all that his new friend said, and it was not until they retired yawning to their room that he followed the child upstairs. It was but a loft, partitioned into two compartments, where they were to rest, but they were well pleased with their lodging, and had hoped for none so good. The old man was uneasy when he had lain down, and begged that Nell would come and sit at his bedside, as she had done for so many nights. She hastened to him, and sat there till he slept. There was a little window, hardly more than a chink in the wall, in her room, and when she left him she opened it, quite wondering at the silence. The sight of the old church, and the graves about it in the moonlight, and the dark trees whispering among themselves, made her more thoughtful than before. She closed the window again, and sitting down upon the bed thought of the life that was before them. She had a little money, but it was very little, and when that was gone they must begin to beg. There was one piece of gold among it, and an emergency might come when its worth to them would be increased a hundredfold. It would be best to hide this coin, and never produce it unless their case was absolutely desperate, and no other resource was left them. Her resolution taken, she sewed the piece of gold into her dress, and going to bed with a lighter heart, sunk into a deep slumber. End of chapter 16